Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting August 5th, 2016, we spotlight a new series of international takes on the U.S. election and its outcome, the first by U.K. political blogger Jonathan Stubbs. His post for the WPJ blog is headlined Double Trouble, Trump and Brexit. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, it seems like ancient history, but it was only six and a half months ago when the Obama White House announced that four Americans imprisoned in Iran were being freed. When he made that announcement, the president also said that the U.S. would pay $1.7 billion to Iran to settle a failed arms deal that dated back to 1979. What the White House did not disclose and has now become an issue is that the first $400 million of that payment would be made just as those detainees were being sprung from Iran. The timing is the issue here. Critics say it looks like ransom, given that the money was paid and the Americans freed right around the same time. The White House denies that it was ransom, but all this has once again shed light on U.S. dealings with Iran, an issue we'll likely hear more of in the final months of the presidential campaign. The president, meantime, thinks the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade deal among a dozen Pacific Rim nations, could be approved after the November election. Both of his possible successors, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, opposed TPP. Obama told us at a news conference that the real issue isn't trade per se, but making sure that globalization and technology benefit more people. He acknowledges that this has not always been the case and admits past trade deals have sparked, quote, fears and anxieties that people may be left behind. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. I have just been to Buckingham Palace, where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government, and I accepted. As we leave the European Union, we will forge a bold, new, positive role for ourselves in the world. And we will make Britain a country that works not for a privileged few, but for every one of us, whoever we are and wherever we're from. She led him right down a horrible path. He didn't know what he was doing. Iraq, Syria, all into chaos. And Iran is on a path to nuclear weapons. We also need to bring back, in this country, because we see what happened, our industry, our manufacturing, our jobs. They've been taken away like we're babies. Taken away. And we're going to bring them back. Voices of a new politics. First Great Britain's Theresa May in her initial public remarks as Prime Minister following a stunning Brexit vote to leave the European Union. Then U.S. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump attacking former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, his Democratic opponent, and the domestic mess for ordinary Americans that he sees left by past presidents of both parties, after which he finally got around to introducing his running mate, religious conservative Indiana Governor Mike Pence. 
Both Trump and May have ridden to their current prominence on similar waves of anti-immigrant, anti-elitist, anti-terrorist, anti-globalist sentiment that raise questions about the direction of critical policies and democracy itself in each country. Double Trouble, Trump and Brexit, by independent UK journalist Jonathan Stubbs for the World Policy blog, is the first in a series of global reactions to America's in many ways unprecedented 2016 campaign. And I talked with him recently about it for this podcast. Jonathan Stubbs, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Uh, the new PM had supported Remain in the referendum, but she undermined that position with some of her statements, you write. Tell us about that and why she finally got the top spot after Brexit won. Well, um, Theresa May was a quiet Remainer um, who advocated an only speech on the subject, which is extremely surprising for a senior member of the government. Um, Britain's leaving the European Court on Human Rights. And the European Court on Human Rights is, is, is one of the founding peers, pillars of the, of the European Union. And it was set up following the Second World War to provide a written constitution for the protection of human rights and the rights of all EU citizens. Um, Britain, as you know, has, has no uh, written constitution, unlike America, which of course has the American Bill of Rights and a Supreme Court to ensure that these rights are protected. Um, so you could say in this light that the European Court on Human Rights is similar to the U United States Supreme Court. Um, Britain instead has the Magna Carta, um, which was written in 1215 to hold the abuse of powers by kings, including unlawful imprisonment. Um, Thomas Paine, in his writing The Rights of Man in the 18th century, and also, of course, a major influence in American history and the, f the formulation of the American Bill of Rights, called this a moldy parchment. <laughs> And he wrote this in the 18th century, so if it was inadequate then for the protection of human rights, then you can imagine how you know, wholly inadequate it is now. Um, so the reason this is really important is because the, 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 the Britain couldn't really leave the European Court of Human Rights without leaving the European Union, which is why his speech was so damaging to the main cause. Um, also, the European Court of Human Rights is important with regards to the implementation of um, UK law including Theresa May's own investigatory powers bill, which um, one of its um, perceived intrusive powers aims to compel tech companies operating in this country, including U.S. tech companies such as Apple, to spy on their own customers and relay this information to government services. Um, now, regardless of the fierce resistance, obviously, the tech companies would put up to this, to such a request. And we saw this in America with the standoff between Apple and the FBI, um, the European Court of Human Rights could well have ruled this illegal. Um, and of course, with regard to the protection of citizens from terrorism, we all want to remain safe you know, from an increased terrorist threat on, on both sides of the Atlantic. But there are limits to these, to the, the amount of freedoms we're willing to, to give up. Um, and in this instance as well, the Act also made it harder for workers to protect to protect their rights in the form of demonstrations and strikes, official strikes, with union officials having to provide their details to the police beforehand. So it kind of criminalised, you know, the protection of workers' rights. Um, so, so, in, so in this act, and um, it's not just about keeping UK citizens safe, but also about kind of stripping away their rights, uh, um, their workers' rights. Um, and this is one of the major contradictions and paradoxes of Brexit. Um, on the one hand, they say they're going to protect jobs and wages and living standards, but on the other, they're going to make it harder for people to protect their rights. 
and leaving the, the EU and the European Court on Human Rights will make them less accountable, or make the government less accountable to stripping away these rights. In a way, Theresa May had a foot in both camps, which explains why she seemed a, a, a likely choice uh, for PM after Brexit won. Yes, exactly. Um, Theresa May, she did seem to kind of sit on the fence. You know, she wasn't, she wasn't pro-Remain, she wasn't pro-Leave, she kind of, and that didn't help uh, David Cameron's cause at all, really. Um, also, she's a Conservative Party grassroots membership of 150,000 people. is overwhelmingly Eurosceptic. Um, it's kind of, you know, the older voters who want to see a return to kind of, you know, 19th century British history and the glory of empire um, is the only way I can describe it, really. Um, and, of course, that we, we can't return to that. It's a different age, it's a different world, it's a different time. Um, so, in a sense, she knew that a low Remain vote would work in her favour because, officially, she was a Remainer. Um, but a low Leave vote would also work in her favour because she'd kind of torpedoed the cause with, a, with stating that Britain should leave the European Convention of Human Rights. Let me ask so, you so, this. Uh, Prime Minister May adopted that all-inclusive tone in her first remarks, but did you understand her words, wherever we are from, to mean actual immigrants and their offspring, such a flashpoint in the Brexit vote that even London's new mayor, Sadiq Khan, was smeared by the Daily Mail? Yeah, yes, I, th I think it's a, a classic kind of one-nation statement, of, uh, one, one nation conservative statement of, of, of new conservative premiers. Um, they kind of you know, talk about um, reducing inequality and governing for the whole nation. Um, we always tend to hear this, and then their actions in government tend to be the opposite of, of, of what they what they say. It's, it's kind of. Um, at the previous government, David Cameron, he reduced lots of low workers out of income tax entirely, but at the same time stripped away tax credits, working families' tax credits, which made them worse off, really, uh, overall. Um, so, uh, and also that statement was very ironic, the way that she said wherever we're from, to actually mean immigrants and their offspring, because she's refused to give... EU citizens who have settled, this, settled in this country, you know, to, to guarantee that they can stay. She's refused to do that. Um, so, so that sounds to me that she's kind of, she's going to use that as a bargaining chip in the negotiations for access to the single market. But at the same time, it leaves UK citizens who have settled in Europe in limbo, in complete limbo. What did you make of her naming the former London mayor, a provocative pro-Brexit Boris Johnson, as foreign secretary? What might it mean for Britain's future foreign policy? Well, um, I was amazed. I was astounded, really. Uh, like the, the the whole of Europe, I think. Um, I, I, I think Boris Johnson, of course, was um, previously uh, a Remainer. Um, he, he's, he's, his family originally from Turkey, um, and also before he committed to the, to the referendum on the Leave side, he, he kind of agonised for a weekend, apparently, and during his. When he was agonising what to do, he didn't know what to do, he wrote two articles for the Daily Telegraph. One was for Remain and one was for Leave. Um, this is his lucrative um, kind of job he has for the Telegraph, the Telegraph for um, a weekly Monday article. Um, and it, it seems to me you, you either believe in something or you don't. Um, and you should know straight away what you're... So it's kind of... There's obviously more to it than that about he was kind of thinking about what will happen afterwards um, for his own career prospects. Um, so I just think and during the Leave campaign, it, it was so depressing to see that 
when, when you look in history, it seems like politicians had more decorum, they had more integrity. You know, they, they would never lie or, or, you know, be dishonest or kind of... And that was just... It seems like in modern politics in the UK, especially the, the referendum campaign and in America, that seems to... That integrity has been thrown out the window. Um, and it's very depressing for me because, you, you know, this guy who's done this, he, he was sacked from the Times for making up stories about the European Union. And Europe knows this now. He, they know his, his kind of past and what he's done, and that contributed to this Eurosceptic kind of vibe in this country that grew and grew. And I, I think sort of the initial reaction in Europe with the French Prime Minister, sorry, the French Foreign Minister, you know, referring to Boris Johnson as a liar, you, you know, we, we can see that they know this history of Boris Johnson. They know that the, how damaging the media has been, the right-wing media in the UK, to building up this, this Euroscepticism in Britain. Um, and I, I, I think also I can understand in one sense that Theresa May kind of, she wants the Brexiteers to lead the negotiations, so therefore, therefore you, you know, the kind of um, promising everything to the UK, we will get full access to the single market, we will not have to pay any of the costs, we will not have free movement to people. Um, and I, I, of course, it, it, they would argue that it's a negotiating start, it's a... It's, it, it, it's just impossible that that's going to happen because the, these are the founding principles of the European Union. They, they kind of, and they're not going to give us a better deal than they have themselves. Um, being members of the European Union and having to deal with these problems and working together that we've turned our backs on, really. Um, and, and as I say, it, it's kind of depressing to see the politics in this day and age rewards this kind of hand behaviour and this kind of deception, open deception, where, you, where you're just talking to one section of the you know the population as, as long as they're with you and they agree with you then that's fine you just continue with this and, and it doesn't seem to be challenged well it's clear that uh, given what you say about europe knowing boris johnson that his job uh, in in the in the diplomatic realm is going to be somewhat handicapped uh, if if uh, if the individual nations that he's going to have to deal with now as as well as uh, the eu uh, don't trust him Beyond the appointment of Johnson, what do you see as the most important or telltale first steps of Prime Minister May, suggesting what may be to come? Besides her early rhetoric, how do you see the new government riding or resisting these waves of fear, anger, ultranationalism, anti-elitism that drove the referendum? You write of a return to Victorian economic utilitarianism and Dickensian social inequities. Yes, I, I, I think there's going to be... Um you know, uh, Theresa May talked about kind of this reducing inequalities and this all-inclusion of the, the whole nation. Um, and that, that's what government's for, really. It, it should be representing the whole nation, not just its own party and its own power base. Um, but I, I, I can't see this, as I say, um, talking about negotiations with single market access. If we don't get full single market access, and I don't see how we can without accepting free movement of people, then how are we going to attract foreign investments? How are we going to attract foreign businesses? Why would they come here when we have a, a market of 65 million, when Europe has a market of 420 million? It just doesn't make sense. So, so the only way to encourage them is obviously tax breaks, and also to make them to make business easier for them. You know, without the, the red tape, the so-called red tape of workers' rights, maternity pays, holiday pays. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, <clears throat> so we, we, we can... As, as, I, I wrote that as to kind of say that these rights that Europe has been so instrumental in protecting... Um, 
I think th- those will be glad, um, gradually eroded with, with, with kind of to try and make it more attractive place, Britain, to kind of, you know, a low-tax kind of, you know, corporate haven where, the, where there's... So I, I don't see how wages are going to in- increase via that scenario. Um, so all the things that she's saying, the Brexit actually means the opposite, um, as, as, as far as I'm concerned. Tell me this, uh, the Prime Minister seemed to preclude a revote on Brexit, though many Brits reportedly have had second thoughts. What if Scotland demands another referendum on leaving the UK so it can stay in the EU as its majority voted? Yes, I, know. I, I, can, I can see Scotland's points. They, that they were um, very for Remain, um, and of course it was only in 2014 that they had their own referendum on independence themselves, um, and then we saw similar tactics to the, to the EU referendum campaign, where there you know, was kind of scaring to say you can't go it alone, um, you have to stay with us. So, so of course there was a, you know, it, it was a low Remain vote for Scotland then, but now we're seeing a reverse of those tactics that's saying... <coughs> If Scotland does that, and it's quite within its rights to, to say that, I mean, I, um, I, I, I think this could be another kind of um, damaging legacy to David Cameron, uh, that, he, that he could end up, through his referendum gambles, he could end up with isolated England, really, um, with, with Scotland voting to leave, to rejoin, rejoin the European Union, uh, and all the protections and benefits that gives them, that, that they were going to the Euro. Um, uh, and then, of course, we'll have scare tactics then, saying you'll get the euro and look at the euro, what a mess that is. And Let's look more across the pond uh, to the United States, where you see similar waves of sentiment uh, pushing uh, the Trump candidacy. How do you see Britain's mixed reaction to the Brexit vote, uh, the terror attack in Nice, uh, coup attempt in Turkey, affecting uh, Trump's support? Um, yes, I think... Obviously, Donald Trump's had very mixed messages about NATO. He's kind of, you know, he wants to put America first. Um, he, he doesn't seem to have much interest in foreign policy apart from praising praising Putin and, you know, other strong leaders. Um, you know, he doesn't seem to mention what these strong leaders are doing to their own to their own people, the way their freedoms have been removed, um, and corruption and things like this that you get from these strong leaders. Um, so I, I do think that Europe is in a critical, um, you know, period, and it's and so is Britain in its history at the moment. I was interested for all the similarity of sentiment behind Trump and Brexit. You note that Trump's protectionist vision would likely clash with post-Brexit Britain's need for new free trade agreements. Talk about that. So I know the free trade utopia. Will we talk about America? We'll have a trade deal with America within within weeks or months or a couple of years. Um, we'll have free trade with everybody. But of course, these are negotiations. You know, it's one country protecting their interests, negotiating with another country protecting the in- with their own interests. These don't happen overnight. It's not. It's not other countries banging on our door saying, "Here's free trade. Here's free trade. We want to make you great again." It's everybody. It's. It, kind of the protection of their own markets and their own self-interest and how they're going to grow their own markets by having free trade with another country. It's how do they see their own expansion, economic expansion and growth. Um, so yes, Trump he talks about protectionism. He, he rejects globalization um, and what that for people being able to, you know, move around and work in different, uh, different countries. 
I mean, my own vision myself is that I think the future of the human race is, is, is kind of a, a secular, borderless world. Once we can get to that, per, uh, that, that future, that, that, kind of, that is utopia for me because it's, it's freedom that we can, we understand different cultures. Trump kind of, he, he's moved to that, back to 1930s protectionism. You, you know, these industries can't compete. They, 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 they can't. It's an um, ever-decreasing circle. You know, eventually your market runs out. If you close your borders and you're only in the internal market, eventually your market dries up or runs out and there's no growth, growth stalls. So that, again, if, if that happens, if Trump does win, so it's completely it's the opposite of what Brexit is, the, the promise of Brexit to the British people, um, it, it's going to conflict there. Trump's not, you know, he's not really interested in free trade. Jonathan Stubbs, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Jonathan Stubbs, an independent British journalist, is the founder and writer of the political blog Britain2100.com. His post on the U.S. presidential race for the World Policy blog is headlined Double Trouble, Trump and Brexit. Featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about a black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai, about public-private collaboration for affordable urban housing, at least on paper, and about the problems with plans for a northern powerhouse in Great Britain before and after Brexit. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.